You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Dan, as ever, fantastic to get you back on Real Vision. How are you? Quite well. Thanks very much. It's always fun to see you. So listen, you know, you're at heart still a macro guy. So first, I want to get an update on what you think the macro is right now, you know, particularly pertaining to what it means for cryptocurrencies. And then we'll talk about some of the really interesting research you guys have done recently as well. Yeah, as a global macro investor, uh, just been looking around the world all these decades looking for trades that are asymmetric, you know, not correlated with everything else. And I still think Bitcoin is by far the biggest one of those trades I've ever seen. And it's been around for 10 years. So, you know, it's, it's had some movement, but I think we still have a couple more decades. And everything that's happening in the fiscal and monetary stimulus arena is, is just unambiguously very good for cryptocurrency pricing. And, and so it's a, it's a really exciting time to invest in the space. So what do you think, how do you think the macro plays out over the next year, you know, in terms of fiscal and monetary stimulus? Because everyone's trying to get their heads around it. Is it inflation? Is it deflation? Is it a mix between one and the other? How are you thinking of it right now? Well, I think it's massively inflationary for things that can't be quantitatively eased. And I think that's where some people get confused. Uh, Most of the uh, items in the CPI basket can be eased, right? It's mainly consumer goods and, you know, flat screen TVs and things like that. And you can make as many flat screen TVs as you want. And actually, the world has a huge amount of excess capacity right now. So CPI inflation is probably not going to do very much. But inflation and things that can't be eased, like gold or Bitcoin or even shares of the S&P 500, those are all going up because the amount of paper money floating around with which you can buy things like that is going up at an unprecedented rate. And do you think the central banks are going to continue to do more? I mean, historically, you, te- you tend to see them go all the way through the cycle, through the bottom of the economic trough and through the other side. How, how do you think it plays out in terms of central bank action? Yeah, I, I think they, they have to keep going, right? The uh, economic impacts of the pandemic are <clears throat> bigger than most uh, people expected. I think they're going to persist for quite some time. Uh, we've had some V-shaped recoveries in the past where something bad happened, uh, 9-11 being an example where a really bad thing happened, everything's shut down for three days. But then in most cases, people could get back to business and get going. This is both a barrier to economic activity. You know, it's an invisible little thing that's preventing people from going into uh, businesses. But it's also a psychological shock. You know, there's a lot of trauma out there. People are going to be very slow. Uh, I got an um, inbound email uh, from Fandango offering me five bucks off a movie ticket. I'm like, it's going to take a little more than five bucks to get most people back in movie theater, right? So um, those will persist for a very long time. And one of my main yardsticks for when this thing's going to start uh, getting back to normal and the economic impacts is getting schools open. And in the U.S., 40% of households have a child under 18. It's really difficult. If uh, a parent is homeschooling a couple of kids, they're not able to work very well. And we've seen statistics from the BLS that women have left the workforce at a at a rate of four times as fast as men because they're um, bearing the brunt of homeschooling their kids. So 
until uh, schools are open, I just don't think the economy can really function. Uh, and when it doesn't function, something has to take up the slack. In the U.S., we have you know both fiscal policy and, and monetary policy. Fiscal is on hold, um, and we're still waiting the outcome of the uh, U.S. election until September f- or January fifth, uh, when we'll find out whether we have a divided government uh, with a Democrat in the White House and a Republican Senate. If that's the case, it really falls back to the Fed. The Fed's kind of the last thing that can act. And so far, the Fed's already um, printed an unprecedented amount of money. Uh, the Fed chair has said it's literally unlimited. And then the incoming uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, when she was commenting on the crisis uh, a few months ago, she said that the Fed could do much more, including buying equities with printed money. And as you know from Japan, that doesn't always work out great. Yeah, I mean, the Japanese are still ongoing. I mean, they're now owning about 60% of the entire equity market. It's unbelievable. So obviously, we've got, at some point, fiscal is going to get pushed through. At some point, I don't know, Biden comes in, feels like it's going to be a peak virus. So there's going to be risks of further lockdowns, I guess, until they can roll out vaccines. So do you see the kind of economic risks for the time being in the shorter term being to the downside before things start picking up again? Yeah, before talking about the risk, I'd love uh, to comment on Japan. I lived in Japan in the early 90s, and they invented all the policies we're dealing with, right? They invented quantitative easing. They invented ZERP, zero interest rate policy. They invented buying equities with printed money. So they invented all these things. And there was a time people used to call that the lost decade. That was 30 years ago, right? Like these policies have not worked in the long run. And so um, I think we can learn a lot from Japan's experience. It's going to take a long time. And um, as we transition to, you know, more fiscal stimulus, more monetary stimulus, you know, the results are going to be slow to to be seen. And I think the economy is going to be very slow to grow out of this. In the 2008-9 global recession, it took uh, about two and a half years to regain the uh, GDP output we had prior to the crisis. And, Unfortunately, I think this is a bigger, deeper, stranger uh, crisis. And so I think it's going to take quite some time to regain all the economic activity. So, you know, both of us are quite focused on Bitcoin and the whole digital space. Let's start with Bitcoin first. This is a very different bull market, isn't it? There's a lot going on here that we haven't seen before. So talk me through. I mean, you'll have seen similar from emerging markets and other things when nobody's involved and then suddenly everybody starts coming. What are you seeing going on and how do you think this is going to evolve over the next 12 months or so? Yeah, I'd say the only thing that's the same as 2017 is the price. Bitcoin's at exactly the same price it was at the end of 2017. But the quality of the underlying fundamentals and the global macro case is, is really you know, orders of magnitude better. In the last three years, so many projects have gone live. So much more has been built on the technology side. Uh, we touched on the global macro case for, you know, massive paper money. Printing has to be good for fixed quantity assets. Uh, and then another huge development is just the ease in which uh, hundreds of millions of people now can buy crypto. Uh, as you remember in 2017, it was really hard to buy crypto. You know, you have to take a selfie with your passport and send it in, wait for a week. You know, the website crashes, you know, and then you buy a few Bitcoin. Uh, now we have firms like PayPal and Square that make it, you know, instantaneous for people to get access to crypto. And I think that's a huge driver that, that has just begun. And that, that in of itself is, is a big story. So I think there's so much different uh, at 
this rally, which is coincidentally at the same price it peaked out last time, uh, than it was in 2017. So, I mean, one of the things we're seeing, and I presume you're seeing it too at, at Pantera level, is the rise of the institution in the space, the family offices and others. What, what are you seeing in that and what are you hearing? Yeah, so in the early days, obviously, it was, it was you know, just uh, cybersecurity experts that were interested in Bitcoin. Then it was, you know, high net worth individuals. Uh, and now you're seeing, you know, larger firms bringing on uh, investments to Bitcoin. In the institutional space, you've seen firms like Cambridge Associates say that a blockchain is a valuable asset to have in your portfolio. You've seen most of the major endowments invest directly in blockchain assets. Uh, and then you're starting to see, you know, obviously some famous global macro investors uh, like Stan Druckenmiller and Paul Jones investing. Uh, and then I think over the next, you know, two or three years, you're going to see pensions, endowments, you know, really broaden out the institutional uh, purchase of crypto assets. So have you spoken to Paul about this yet? Have you got his rundown of where his head's at with it? I've spoken to him, uh, but I, I did read the, the takes in his uh, investor letter. And he said literally the same thing that Stan Druckenmiller and others have said, it's like gold in the 70s. And that analog is so pure and, and perfect in my mind. That in the 70s, we had uh, quite a bout of inflation. U.S. long bond went to 13%. Uh, and so gold was a much better where, uh, place to store your wealth than in a paper money. You know, we're having the same thing here. Uh, you know, a huge increase in the amount of paper money is going to drive up the value of uh, fixed quantity assets. You wrote a paper that was really interesting about the supply and demand dynamics that you see right now. Talk us through that a bit, because you know it, a lot of people started talking about it because I think it was it was really simple and pure and clean. So t- talk us through that. I had a conversation once with one of my Tiger Cub friends, as a TMT investor, and he said, "Hey, we don't trade Bitcoin because there's no cash flows to discount, so we can't value it." And that's really the kind of the thing that eats at people. It's hard to value cryptocurrencies. Um, one line would be, you know, there's no cash flows to dollar yen, but that doesn't stop people from trading it. They've been trading it forever. You know, so you can't get your head around a currency. The simplest way to think about it is literally Econ 101 supply and demand graphs. You know, you have a supply graph that I think is very inelastic, very vertical. Um, it takes much higher prices to pry, you know, Bitcoin out of people's hands. Uh, obviously, the Bitcoin money supply formula is fixed, so it doesn't matter what the price is. You're still going to get six and a quarter Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And then I think the demand curve is actually the opposite. It's pretty flat. You know, it's basically price insensitive. Uh, you know, certain number of people just want to buy Bitcoin each month and they buy it. And most don't really, uh, you know, stress about what the price is. So you have this little uh, Econ 101 supply demand graph. There's been two huge things in the last six months. The first one is the supply got cut in half. That's what the halving's about. There's half as many supplied. Uh, so that moves the supply curve, you know, very big to the left. Uh, and then the demand has been growing for lots of reasons, but just to distill it down, the biggest news is PayPal. You and I have been invested in crypto for a while. We're really psyched. We've, you know, been uh, trying to evangelize and get people interested in space. And we've gotten a community, maybe 100 million people, something like that, own, own cryptocurrency. PayPal's 300 million people, right? So they just brought the ability to buy crypto to three times as many people as have it. And so in your Ecom 101 supply-demand curve, that's a demand shift that just jacks up the demand curve because there's just a lot more people that can buy it. When those two things happen at the same time, it drives the price up a ton. And that's basically what we're seeing. And the proof of it is in a graph we put in our last investor letter showing the flows through 
uh, PayPal's um, servicer, ItBit, in exchange. And they were, you know, steady and constant until PayPal went live. And then they've been growing at such a rate that now PayPal buys more than all of the newly issued Bitcoin. So there's one firm that's buying more than the entire supply of Bitcoins. And as you remember for Econ 101 is if you're buying more than all that is supplied, you have to have a higher price to motivate somebody to sell. So that uh, is basically the dynamic that supply is shrinking, demands expanding at a rapid rate, and it's driving the price up. So when I look at this and I see that these kind of platforms now onboarding like PayPal and Square, and there's the, the, the grayscale trust, right? So that basically is already tip supply and demand. And then you're about to try and jam in all of the institutions into a market with no supply. I'm like, part of me thinks that maybe everybody's under-egged their, their, their price targets because I haven't seen something like this before where you've got this lopsided um, demand supply and then you're about to throw in all the biggest investors in the world. Yeah, so we actually wrote something on this uh, in April about what happens in the halving. So every four years, the number of Bitcoin that are issued is cut in half. And um, the past obviously doesn't predict the future, but it often rhymes, so it's, it's worth going into. In the first halving, they were cutting from 50 Bitcoins every 10 minutes to 25, and there weren't that many Bitcoins outstanding. So it was, it was actually, actually 15% of all the outstanding Bitcoins was the... Uh, uh, reduction in supply. The price went up a lot. Four years later, the halving was obviously half as big, and there was a lot more outstanding Bitcoin. So it had uh, an impact on the stock to flow of about 5% of the outstanding Bitcoins. And the price still went up 900%, which is, as you know, happens every few years in Bitcoin. This halving, again, half as big as the last one, there's a bit more Bitcoin in existence. So it's about 2% of the stock of, of Bitcoin that's being reduced in supply. So if you use those ratios, it would be about a third as big as the previous uh, thing, which would be a 300% return. And that is, you know, that is, it's possible. And, and in April uh, this year, we graph where that would be, and it would put you at 110000 per Bitcoin in um, August of next year. We're actually pretty close to that pace right now. It's, it was, uh, it's doubled basically since then, and you know, probably won't get all the way to that level by August of next year, but it could easily be uh, you know, two or three times the price it is today uh, in four or five months. Part of me just feels the structure of this, these halving cycles might change just because of who's coming in, because it, it was basically retail before. So it was driven by a retail cycle, but you're, you're trying to squeeze an elephant into the bathtub now. Because, you know, you just saw with Rick Reader talking about it, and then Fink talks about it immediately afterwards, even knew exactly how many hits they had on the website about the Rick Reader interview. It's like BlackRock, BlackRock clearly following this very closely. And it feels like they're all coming. I mean, I had a conversation on Real Vision last week, it was in fact out today, with the largest RIA firm in America, and they're just desperate for the ETF. He's like, you know, he's educating everybody. He's educating the whole RIA community, Rick Edelman. And then the next part of that is the moment that ETF comes out, there's a whole load more people to come in and still no more supply. I mean, supply doesn't change, really. Yeah, I think that's the point. You know, I, I've known Rick, and he's a huge proponent of, of Bitcoin, that there's so 
many institutional investor classes that really have no exposure yet. You know, the, most of the IRA platforms don't have uh, an offering like our Bitcoin fund on their platform yet. Obviously, the big Wall Street wirehouses don't yet have uh, a, a Bitcoin or blockchain offering. So as those channels open up, make it easier for the hundreds of trillions that are invested in stocks and bonds to be able to put, you know, 30, 40 basis points into blockchain, that's a huge number on our little market and it'll exert an enormous uh, upward pressure on the price. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. How are you thinking? You can see there's a lot of noise about regulation coming into the space, which kind of, you know, I argue with the crypto community, they don't want regulation, but they want the price to rise. I'm kind of like, well, if you want the price to rise, you want the institutions to come in, you have to regulate to do it. What are you seeing in terms of regulation? You must be closer to it. And what do you think about where it is so far? Yeah, six or eight years ago, I actually used to say that Bitcoin suffered from a lack of regulation. And, you know, some libertarians would be uh, bristling at that comment. But I, I meant it even in their spirit, that if they want Bitcoin and other blockchains to be important, there's a certain amount of regulation that's going to make them more successful, right? Like if you want Bitcoin to take over the world, there is some regulation you need. And in most countries, it's pretty well resolved, uh, like in the U.S., which I know the best, most of the regulatory bodies ruled even seven years ago. The IRS ruled in 2013, Treasury ruled in 2013. The CFTC has been very supportive of Bitcoin, and we've had uh, futures on the CME for three years. So most of the agencies have ruled. Recently, OCC allowed any nationally chartered bank to custody crypto. It's a huge announcement. Uh, so, you know, most have been very positive. And then I think the, the big issue in the regulatory space is China is said it's game on. They're building their own blockchain. Um, and other countries basically have to do something about that, right? Like, um, if you're a regulator and you, you're, you're not, uh, you're bummed that China's bringing a blockchain out, you, you still have to do something about it. So I think that really puts the clock ticking for all regulators to address blockchain. The U.S. Federal Reserve just uh, began a project in the Boston Fed to work with MIT on a U.S. Central bank digital currency, and I think all major uh, countries are going to have to have a digital currency strategy going forward. Yeah, I mean, that seems clear. I mean, the IMF, the BIS, the ECB, I mean, everybody's pushing it. And it seems that most of them are pretty urgent to try and get it out. How do you think that's going to affect the stablecoin market? Because that's where there seems to be talk of more regulation. Mnuchin was on the tapes yesterday at G7 mentioning it. How do you think that plays out? I think that... Um, all these central banks creating their own essentially stable coin or, you know, a currency that's pegged to a, a main currency just brings way more people into the space. And, and we had that worry 18 months ago when when word was starting to leak out that Facebook was going to launch its own currency. And that was terrible for crypto and terrible for Bitcoin. In the end, it's great, you know, that uh, any well-respected institution, whether it's a central bank or a, a company like Facebook that has 2.4 billion customers, that brings credibility to the space and essentially just makes the pie a whole lot bigger. If you have billions of people using it, the pie is much bigger. Yes, each slice might be a little uh, narrower. So, you know, Bitcoin's share of the overall tokenized asset market will be smaller, 
But if you bring billions of people into the marketplace, I think that means the value of Bitcoin or the value of XRP or ETH or whatever it is, is going to be higher. So what do you think Facebook are going to do in this? Obviously, they're launching the dollar stable coin. And I've got a chat with the guys from Facebook from Facebook or from, what's it called now, Diem, I think it is, in January. What are they doing with the wallet? Because the wallet's going to be interesting here as well. Because if they can use this platform for either storage or exchange of digital assets, then that's a huge game changer for everyone, right? It is. And, and you know, I certainly don't uh, have any inside information on what Facebook's going to do. But obviously, they want to make it easy for their users to do retail purchases, not just in their own domestic country, but uh, if you know, borderlessly, right? So um, you're seeing that with uh, Alipay's allowing, you know, 1.3 billion people to do commerce online. Uh, Facebook, the Fed, <laughs> all the other entities that are in the payment space, you know, really need to need to emulate that. It's not all about Bitcoin, as you and I have talked about. I just want to know where your head's at with the other digital assets. I mean, one of the most contentious ones seems to be XRP. And that's, you know, I, I did a big piece on Real Vision about it. Where, how do you see that project? Because you've been invested in that for a long time now. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's easy to, to be kind of extremist on currencies. And, you know, some people think it's all one versus all another. Um, I think there's going to be a single digit number of very important blockchains in the long, long run. There won't be 2,000, but there won't be just one. Uh, so we are invested in Bitcoin and, ETH and XRP. Um, and at various times, we changed our views, and, and uh, we made a very strong call in our, I think it was a March investor letter, that we wanted to go much longer Bitcoin relative to everything else. Bitcoin, we thought, would do well in the kind of aftermath of the pandemic's economic shock. Uh, but now, actually, I think the other uh, currencies are going to outperform Bitcoin. And, you know, this isn't to inspire a bunch of hate, hate uh, trolling, but it's Bitcoin's going to go up a ton. Uh, but I just think other things can outperform it. And partly it's just, you know, Bitcoin's the mega cap. You know, it, it can't go up and down as much as the tiny little small caps do. Uh, and I think we're in a massive bull market. So the smaller cap things have high beta. They're going to outperform. Bitcoin's 62% of the market cap right now got up to just below 70. Uh, and a few years ago, it was down to 32. So um, a quick kind of metric would be, I think, Bitcoin dominance and drift down. Uh, by Bitcoin going up and everything else going up a lot more. What's the most exciting thing you're seeing on XRP and what's the most exciting thing you're seeing on ETH right now? XRP is fueling the cross-border money movement that we had, you know, everybody in the industry has been talking about for a long time. Uh, currently, blockchain-enabled cross-border money movement for here from the United States to Mexico is uh, getting close to 10% of all of that very important $25 billion remittance corridor. So that's a huge success for our industry, that, uh, a use case that, that's really making people's lives better. And if you think about remittance, um, you know, for those of us in finance, the average remittance cost is 9%. And you know, it's just a number, whatever, it's 900 basis points. But for the migrant, that's a month's wages, right? The migrant has to work for an entire month just to pay their, their remittance company. So if you can send it you know, with uh, crypto directly, it's almost free if you have to, you know, pay an agent, um, you know, like Pitso or somebody like that, it's a percent or two. But it's still, you know, it's already changing people's lives. And obviously, the most important thing in, in uh, Ethereum is E2.0 going live, uh, going away from proof of work, which is, you know, uh, wasteful, obviously, to proof of stake to allow, you know, a much more efficient system. 
And how are you seeing all these DeFi projects? Because, I mean, this is a very typical early phase where things launch, things blow up, whatever, and then eventually something establishes some sort of dominance and thing. Where are you seeing that space? Have you been invested in that? Yes, yeah, so we've been invested and it is important. And one of our themes on uh, Bitcoin and blockchain in general is, is essentially the, the way uh, the internet's finally changing finance. And if you think about it, the internet changed everything else in our lives, but it didn't touch remittance. Like I said, it, it really didn't touch credit cards. They still charge the same as they did in the 60s. It didn't change correspondent banking. Um, still extremely slow to send money from here to the UK or whatever. So blockchain is the thing that's disrupting all those uh, finance uh, oligopolies, basically. And DeFi is kind of one subset of it. And it's essentially taking the middleman out of borrowing and lending or other finance applications. And the borrowing lending one's the easiest one, I think, for people to get their heads around. Uh, banks lend to credit card borrowers at 17%, and then they give you zero on your deposits. There's obviously a lot of room in there to do <laughs> it uh, in a, a way that's better for both the borrower and the lender. And that's basically what DeFi is. It's allowing people to borrow money at more you know, affordable interest rates and then allowing depositors to get the majority of that interest rate for themselves. So we've seen the amount of value lockup in DeFi go from pretty close to zero a year ago to 12 billion today. Um, you know, it's a huge achievement for our industry. It's, you know, it's great for those of us that are involved, but you know, there's trillions of uh, borrowing and lending going on out there, hundreds of trillions actually. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a huge, you know, couple, uh, couple decades to go. And what else are you seeing that's interesting? You're seeing on the horizon, you're thinking, oh, okay, that's going to be interesting. Yeah, we're, um, Really excited about Polkadot, you know, because it takes all the advantages of Ethereum, but uh, does it with uh, much more throughput. Um, so we're invested there. You know, the DeFi uh, explosion's been, you know, an important development. Um, decentralized exchanges as well, you know, same deal. Like, why have a, you know, heavily collateralized middleman hold everyone's assets when you can hold them in code? So we've seen. Uh, the exchange space explode there. Now there's even things like one inch that are supplying the, the peripheral activities to exchanges. And so seen a lot of activity in the, in the DeFi space. And what are you guys doing at Pantera right now? What, what, what projects have you been working on? So we've had a resurgence in uh, venture investing over the last nine months, basically since the pandemic started. <clears throat> um, there've been a, quite a number of interesting deals out there. The Investment in ICOs and, and protocols uh, had slowed down dramatically after the pandemic. We've done a couple deals in October and November, so there's a few ICOs that are interesting. And then for that fund in particular, there's a lot of deals like Filecoin and Polkadot that we've been invested in for many years that have just gone live, just started trading. Uh, so that's added, a, you know, it's, it's good to see the, the fruits of all these years of investment. And how do you figure out early stage when somebody's got a technology how the hell do you figure it out? I mean, it's really hard to know what's going to be a winner in this space um, that early on. What is the process you do to, to, to look at these things? Because, I mean, so many people just think, oh, it's all scams, right? That's the narrative that goes on. And it's not. It's about doing your homework. But what? how the hell do you figure it out? Yeah, so I think there's a misunderstanding about uh, ICOs and that they were invented in 2017 at... at uh, you know, consensus or token summit, and then they kind of did their thing and they went away. The reality is they were, uh, they began in 2013. They were just very rare. My partner, Joey Krug, did Augur in 2015. You know, so there's two or three 
important protocols coming out each year. At the height of the boom in 2017, there was 50 coming out each week. And obviously that's not sustainable or natural. And so that's gone away. But we've gone back to what it used to be is there are a couple uh, each year that are very important that we're investing in. And the way you evaluate it is pretty similar to venture. <clears throat> so you have to go through all the kind of same things you would with a early stage venture protocol. The, uh, and obviously they're very tech heavy. So um, it's, it's nice to have our co-CIO having started uh, a protocol. But the, the big difference is you need a community. And it's, it really is different than, uh, you know, building some, you know, venture-backed company that builds some cool widget. If the widget works better than somebody else's thing and it's cheaper, it's going to sell. Whereas here, you know, open source protocols, you need to get, you need to motivate a community uh, to, to create it and developers to build apps on it. So that would be the only kind of extra dimension that we're evaluating protocols on is whether the founding team is likely to be able to build a community that becomes self-sustaining and, and lets the project grow. So in other words, the tribalism in the space is a feature and not a bug. It is, actually. That's a good way to say it. Yeah, because, you know, you see it. And, and, you know, what's interesting about this space is the behavioral incentives align perfectly. Because when you're dealing with money and the value of the token goes up, the more the community grows, the more you will make money from it. So it's an incredibly powerful dynamic if you can get it to take off. Sure. And, you know, all spirals work in both directions, right? You know, when it's a positive spiral, everyone's piling in, building more code, building more apps, it, and it all works better. And then, unfortunately, when, you know, protocols don't work and people are bailing from the project, you know, then it's hard to get the momentum back. And are you still finding that operating within the different parts of the digital asset space, you're still finding significant alpha? I guess in, this, in these kind of markets, you must be finding quite a lot of alpha there. Oh, I think so. Um, you know, there's two sides to it, the protocol side and the venture side. Um, you know, on the protocol side, you know, there's a lot of focus on Bitcoin because it's the biggest thing. It's the thing everyone knows. Everybody knows it's up 160%. You know, but, um, you know, like our, our digital asset fund that trades all those assets is up 200% and, you know, other things are up 300%. You know, so there's just, there's a lot of opportunity to create alpha that's beyond just Bitcoin. And again, Bitcoin's a great proxy for the industry, but there's a lot of value being created elsewhere. And then on the venture side, you know, we just are barely starting to see public companies uh, buying Bitcoin or, or investing in Bitcoin enabled uh, companies. But I think you're, you know, we have five or 10 years of legacy finance firms buying crypto oriented companies. So uh, from a, a venture standpoint, I, I think it's very exciting times because we really haven't yet seen a full acquisition of a, you know, a, a good sized crypto company by a major legacy finance player. And yeah, I think in 10 years, you're going to see a lot of that. Yeah, that'll be a real benchmark. And so in terms of running the portfolio of, of digital currencies that you guys run, what's the process by which? Is that trading? Is it more kind of asset allocation, slightly slower? How do you approach that whole space? Because a lot of people don't know how to approach it. They kind of, they kind of get the cadence wrong. How do you think about it? Yeah, so in um, two of our funds, it's a, essentially a buy and hold strategy. And obviously, our Bitcoin fund is mirroring the uh, uh, performance of Bitcoin itself. And then our ICO fund, we're investing in pre-auction ICOs. Um, there was a time in 2017 that they sometimes became liquid very quickly. These days, uh, because of U.S. SEC issues and other things, it's typically at least a year until something becomes liquid. And then some things like, you know, a Polkadot or a Filecoin, we might hold for many more years after that. And so the pace on investing in pre-auction ICOs uh, is a 
essentially multi-year pace. However, when we're trading liquid currencies like ETH, XRP, Bitcoin, we do uh, take two approaches, discretionary approach and quantitative. Uh, the easy one's quant. We have 20% of our fund in a quantitative model that is trading every hour. So it's looking at what's cheap, rich, uh, and uh, making those trades. On the discretionary side, it is a bit more thematic and you know changes much more slowly. Uh, one of the big parameters would be Bitcoin dominance. You know what percentage of the fund we want to have in Bitcoin versus other things. And sometimes we make big trades on that where you know we, we uh, change the percentage of Bitcoin uh, dramatically. And then within the rest of the portfolio, um, we're looking for protocols that we think are going to outperform. In the next, say, three or four months type time frame, it's, it's certainly not we're not trying to trade for hours. And that would be the thing we're always trying to share with our investors and, and then with yours that are thinking about the industry is, although tokens have a real-time price feed, that doesn't mean um, one should trade them all the time. And I, I was having an interview uh, with Mike Novogratz, and he was talking about the first time he called to talk about Bitcoin in 2013. He said, yeah, I'm trading Bitcoin. And I was like, no, you're gambling. Because there's no data in 2013 upon which you could make any rational choices. And there's there's a lot of data now, but we really want to remind people that we're trying to get, you know, five and 10x uh, multiples over the next several years, rather than, you know, worrying about, you know, a couple basis points every few hours here. And, and investors should think about allocating an amount of their portfolio they're willing to lose and keep it in for three, four, five years and think of it much more like venture. Yeah, it feels like it's kind of semi-liquid venture. I mean, you get a mark-to-market, which is sometimes annoying. I mean, half the time, you'd rather not get the mark-to-market so you can just run the position with your eyes shut. It is. I keep thinking if uh, TCPIP had a real-time price feed in the 70s, it probably would have like gone out of business and no one would ever be using the internet, right? Like, So it's, it's, both, uh, it's a double-edged sword having real-time prices on cryptocurrencies. So final question, Dan. What do you think is going to be the best-performing digital currency over the next 12 months. We, we've established we all think Bitcoin's going up. You've established that you probably think its dominance goes down because that's the point in the cycle. What do you think is likely, best guess, going to your head, going to be the best performer? Hard to say, but if I had to pick one, I actually pick Polkadot. It's uh, about 10% of the value of Ethereum, and I think it's more than 10% chance that it's uh, you know very viable competitor. Uh, so I think all cryptocurrencies can go up a ton, but if you you know, if you want to paper trade this and have a call a year from now and check in, I'll go with Polkadot. Well, like a true macro guy, you have the right to change your mind at any second. Dan, listen, as ever, great to catch up with you. Good to hear your thoughts. And, um, and we'll catch up with you again soon. Great. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, not at all. Take care. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com